Uh, it really is a privilege to be here. Thank you, Bernie, for the invitation and the introduction. And uh, thank you so much for your ministry as well. It has definitely blessed me. Um, I'm happy to be here. This is actually the home church of uh, my parents who are here um, and family. My sister is here as well. So Joe Grasso and Theo, you probably know her. Um, so I'm really glad to be here also um, with students from Adventist Campus Ministry. And I'll talk to you a little bit about them a little bit later. Um, but I would be remiss to start a sermon this Sabbath, this particular Sabbath, if I didn't honor really quickly um, the life and legacy of a uh, a legend within the Adventist church in terms of evangelism, Elder C.D. Brooks. Um, I don't know how many of you uh, have listened to C.D. Brooks, but he's, he is a legend. With, he's an evangelist uh, who passed away this, this week. Um, I remember, and as a young person, 17 years old, driving around with my friends, and we owned two C.D. Brooks cassette tapes. And we would just repeat. Cassette tapes are these little um, square plastic things, and they play um, music, and sometimes um, we would listen to sermons. And we would drive, and we would park the car, and we would stay. Even though we had listened to this sermon like 20 times, we had to listen to a specific illustration or a specific appeal that he would make. And he was a, a great inspiration for me, and, and I tried to emulate his preaching style. It failed miserably, but I really appreciated him. I have his signature in one of my Bibles. That's how much of a fan I was. Um, so just praise the Lord for his ministry, and I want to just honor his legacy today. So I want to introduce you real quick to Adventist Campus Ministry. Those of you who are young adults who don't know or haven't heard of Adventist Campus Ministry, Adventist Campus Ministry is the official um, campus ministry for public university students, students attending non-Adventist universities here in the Florida Conference. Um, I came on three years ago to, to minister directly to this group of students. Um, I'm based up at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida, where we have a strong contingent of Seventh-day Adventist students. This is a picture of our year-end banquet. Um, and this, has, this is uh, students from UF. There are students from UCF, from different um, universities across the state of Florida. And these are Adventist students on public universities, and they're doing amazing things in, in, in just in academia in general, but also they're doing amazing things for God. And some of them were kind enough to, to make the drive um, all the way here to visit and to be with us today uh, and to support me in my preaching. So if y'all could stand, if you are a member of Adventist Campus Ministry, I'm gonna embarrass you a little bit. Just stand and, and, and turn around, please, turn around. And, and so these are students from all across the state of Florida. They live in Miami, they live in Palm Springs, Palm Coast, all the palms, like they're from there. Uh, all the coasts, they're from there. They're from all across the state of Florida. And yet when they come to school together, even though it's a public university, a secular setting, we try to provide a space for them where they can have a home away from home where they can have a family. And it's really a privilege for me as a chaplain to be able to serve them because I get to journey with students um, and young adults, and Bernie understands this, during one of the most defining decades of their life. Actually, there's a book called The Defining Decade by Meg Jay, who's a psychologist out of Berkeley. And she says that in your 20s, you make 80% of the most important decisions in your life. Your 20s are what she calls a developmental sweet spot 
In other words, you have this deve developmental period in your, in your very um, young age, in your infancy, where you, where you absorb information, where you learn, where you form personality. But then she says there's an other developmental sweet spot, and that's in your 20s. This is a time when you kind of step away from your parents and your family, and you begin to make certain decisions that will determine the trajectory of the rest of your life. Some of the most important decisions around career, around family, around character are made when you're in your 20s. And Meg Jay, she did a, um, a TED Talk, which I recommend you check it out, called, I think it's called The Defining Decade. And she basically said your 20s are like a plane taking off from LAX, heading towards some Western destination. One slight change or modification in the... I don't know what it's called. My friend Michael's back there. He's a pilot. But in your one slight change in the trajectory at the beginning will determine whether 10 hours from now you end up in Japan or in Australia. But that change can't be made when you're just about to land. But if you make the change right when you take off, it will determine your destination. That's what it's like ministering to young adults in their 20s. The slightest little bit of investment that we make in them, the slightest little bit of advice that we give them can change the entire trajectory of their life. And that's why for me, it's such a privilege and a joy to work with young adults. Um, I have the privilege not just to work as a chaplain, um, organizing worship and helping them with mission trips and with service, but I also help students through some challenging times, maybe a challenging realization that they're studying something that they didn't choose, but that was chosen for them. Maybe uh, I work with them through difficult relationships. Um, my wife, Kathy, and I have facilitated our fair share of premarital counseling sessions, which is always fun. And for a while there, we had a notorious record of breaking up people who came and, and met with us. Um, so I think that's a good thing, you know, because if you're not ready, you're not ready. And, um, Fortunately, though, in the last year or two, our record, our stats have kind of evened out, and we've been able to, to do a couple weddings. I did a wedding last summer um, for Adrian and Melissa. I don't know if you guys are watching, but shout out to you guys one year this month. Um, and it really is a dream job that I have. My current working job description is, at least what I tell people, is I'm here to help young adults have a great life. Whatever that means, that's what I'm here to help them do. I do that by helping them discover God's purpose for them and the passions and gifts that he's placed in their lives. I also have the opportunity to speak life into students, either through my preaching or through my counseling. I get to speak to their non-Adventist or even non-Christian friends. It's such an adventure to be on a public campus creating a space for worship and for, the, and for declaring of, of the gospel because you really never know who's going to show up. I get to counsel students as they experience the various challenges and pressures of college life on a public campus. But then I have to admit that there are moments for me as a preacher, as a teacher, as a counselor, when words fail. These are the moments when a student reveals to me a pain too deep to utter. These are the moments when, when a student experiences a heartbreak too devastating to explain away. And then there are the moments of just unexpected and unknowable tragedy. Just this past week alone, two young adults from right here in Florida passed away 
in the prime of their lives. One young adult named Alexandra Dean, who many of my students knew from Miami, she just graduated from Nova Southeast as a nursing grad. She passed away. She was, she was tragically shot at a birthday party in Miami Gardens. Adventist young person, just getting ready to launch into life, 23 years old. Another young man who, whose, whose memorial will be here, Jonathan Mould. A young man, also a nursing student from Southern, passed away, a budding photographer in his mid-20s. It's moments like these when, when words just seem to fail. And where do we go? Where do we turn when we don't have the answers? Where do we go when words fail? We're going to spend some time in the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to read a couple of verses to you, and then we're going to study the verses in between. So Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18, the Bible says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then Romans chapter 8, verse 28. The Bible says in the same way, I'm sorry, the Bible says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. How many of y'all are familiar with these Bible texts? We're familiar with these texts and, and we know them and we, we can repeat them from memory. And often these are the go-to texts that we go to when someone is experiencing pain and when someone is experiencing suffering. But I'd like to suggest to us today that if used out of context and if used unwisely, these texts can at times seem like an indictment on mourning. At times these Bible promises can be seen as a no to crying as a no to mourning, as a no to suffering. But what's amazing about these two texts, Romans chapter 8 verse 18 and Romans chapter 8 verse 28, is that there are nine verses in between them. And when we look at the nine verses in between those two texts, we understand something about the relevance of those promises and where they come in to the suffering soul. So let's just take a look at those texts, Romans chapter 8, and we'll go to verse 19. So Paul just finished saying that he considers that the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed with us. Verse 19 says, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. 
In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so what we see here is when Paul says that this, this suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory, he doesn't just say, now stop suffering. Instead, what he does is he enters into and tries to, tries to articulate the degree to which we are suffering here on earth. The first thing that he highlights is that the creation is suffering. He says that the creation is groaning together. And what, what does it mean to groan together? Well, I would like to suggest that there are times and there are moments when our suffering is so deep, when our suffering is so extreme that we do not have words to speak. That all we can do is groan. In the last two years, three students from the University of Florida died tragically. One student died in a wakeboarding accident, and two students died in car accidents. One of those students was a young man named Jerry. He was walking down the street in Gainesville, and a car hit him. He went flying through the air, and, and he ended up in the intensive care unit. He was on life support, and I was there with his family. And I was there in, the, in, the, in that room when the doctors had to reveal to the parents of a 21-year-old young man that he had no hope for survival. I had never heard that kind of wailing before. I had never heard that kind of groaning before. I had never seen that kind of suffering. The suffering of a mother and a father, immigrants to this country who invested their entire life into this young man just to have him slip out of their hands. The creation groans, but not only does the creation groan, but it says that we ourselves, the ones who have received the first fruits of the Spirit, in other words, even us as Christians, even us, the ones who have the hope of glory, the ones who know that Jesus is going to come again, even we experience this pain and this loss and this groaning and this yearning for redemption, for something more. Either it's a death in the family or maybe it's the death of a relationship or maybe it's the death of a career. We all go through periods in our life when we don't have the words to speak. Maybe it's something that someone has done to us, a certain kind of heartbreak, a certain kind of abuse. Or maybe it's something that we've done to ourselves, a betrayal. Maybe it's something that we see happening in the lives of others around us when, when the promises just seem to fall on deaf ears because it's nothing but pain, nothing but sorrow. Paul says that the creation groans, but he also says that we ourselves are groaning and we're longing for something more. When we recognize those moments, when we realize that we're living in a world where one in five women experience sexual abuse. Where we're living in a world where our campuses have a culture of binge drinking and rape. Where we realize where we're living in a world of, of un, unfathomable inequality. 
Where even today we can, we can take a trip to and get on a plane and within eight hours we can be in a land where children are starving to death. That we today live in a world where every few seconds a child is dying of, unprevent, of preventable diseases. That's the world that we live in and we groan because we don't know. How can it be that we live in a world of such advanced technology, of such advanced information, and yet we're still dealing with these problems? We can't seem to get a grip on them. Wars and rumors of wars, we're groaning for something more. And yet here's the amazing thing about what Paul lays out. He goes on to say that not only does creation groan, not only do we groan, but he says that the Holy Spirit groans, says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. With groanings too deep for words. This idea, this, this settling into this reality that God groans with us is just amazing to me. And the thing that makes it so amazing to me is that we worship a God who groans. What's so amazing about this is that we worship a God who sees the beginning from the end. He knows the outcome. And yet he is not too far off to enter into and to experience our suffering. We serve an amazing God. Not only does the spirit groan, but Jesus groans with him. Turn with me to the book of John chapter 11. It's a story that we're all familiar with, but I just want us to spend a little bit more time. In John chapter 11, we know the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. In verse 33, it says that when Jesus came to where Martha was, it says, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. So just stop and consider this for a second. The disciples came, and a messenger came to Jesus and said, Lazarus is sick. And he's like, well, it's the sickness not unto death. Keeps it moving. And then, the, and then they come again. He's on his way, and they say, he's dead. And he says, Lazarus is just asleep. I am the resurrection and the life. So Jesus knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And when he gets there, Martha falls at his feet and says, Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus, it says, he saw how troubled they were. He saw how sad they were. And it says that Jesus himself was deeply moved and spirit and was troubled. There's two things that it says there. It says deeply moved in spirit. And it says that he was troubled. And the word troubled there in the Greek can be translated as that he, had, he was quaking with rage. And he said, verse 34, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? And so what we see here is two responses. One, they see Jesus mourning, they see him weeping, and they view it as a sign of love. But other view his mourning and they view his, his weeping, and they see it as a sign of weakness. 
They see his mourning and his weeping as some sort of sign of weakness, and they begin to, to start questioning among themselves, well, what if he would have done this differently? What if he would have done that differently? And just as an aside, I want to speak to anyone who knows someone who's experienced this kind of tragedy, this kind of suffering, this kind of death, is that that is not the time to start questioning why were they where they were. Why couldn't their parents have done something different? Why couldn't they have made different choices? Because that's what they were doing. Jesus, he's just stepping into and experiencing the suffering. Meanwhile, the naysayers are starting to question why those decisions were made. And when he sensed their heart, when he knew that they were saying this, look at what it says in verse 38. It says, so Jesus again being what? Deeply moved within. He was so deeply moved within that the, the Greek there kind of translated as he was bellowing. He was bellowing like, oh. Here's a man, Jesus, who's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He could have just stepped in, stepped onto the scene and been like, all right, guys, I got this. Stop your crying. Stop your mourning. Resurrection and life. Let's do this. But instead, what does he do? He steps in. Why? Because even though Jesus knew the truth about what was about to take place, sometimes our tears are more important than our truth. Sometimes before we tell someone the truth about the resurrection, they need to know that we're crying with them about what's happening in this life right now. And Jesus knew this. And this is actually a deeper truth. There was this truth that Jesus was going to raise this man from the dead. And there exists that truth that Jesus will raise us from the dead, those who believe. But there is this deeper truth. And this deeper truth is this, is that although Jesus knows the beginning and the end, he is not too far off to step into any situation that we're going through. Any experience of suffering and pain and betrayal, he's right there. If we weep, he weeps. If we groan, he groans. If we cry, he cries. We serve a God who groans. This is good news. Because this is the kind of God I want to spend the rest of my life with. This God who groans. Two summers ago, it, um, we have summer sessions at UF. And they have summer A and summer B. And during our first Vespers program of Summer A, a young lady walked into our program. I don't know how she found out about us or who told her about us, but she just walked in. She was a transfer student, international student from the Dominican Republic. And she walked in and she said, hi, my name is Desiree. We were so happy to see her. We welcomed her in. And she immediately started worshiping God. We got to know Desiree. She started hanging out with us, coming to our different events. And we came to realize what an amazing soul she was. She loved worshiping God. You know, sometimes with young adults, it's hard to get them to get excited about worship. For some reason, I don't know if that's a problem here, but that's a problem, at, you know, where we are at. I think it's because people just don't know each other. They're trying to feel each other out. So when we try to do worship, we're up there singing and they're just like, Sitting, sitting down, right, in the classroom. It's probably because it's a classroom. Like, this is where they suffer through their lectures. And now we're trying to get them to worship, right, in that classroom. But Desiree didn't care. 
she was, all, she was usually the only person standing up and singing with the songs. She had an audience of one. We went on our, um, we went that school year, as the school year was starting, we decided that we wanted to do outreach activities on campus. We wanted to be more intentional about showing compassion. And Desiree came and she said, I want to lead this. I want to be, whatever you guys are doing, I want to help lead this compassion thing. And so we started a position called the Compassion Coordinator. And Desiree was the first compassion coordinator that we had. I remember one time we went, um, we went camping. We went down to Rainbow Springs and, and we, we borrowed some canoes and we got on those canoes. And, I, and I, Desiree and I um, and Monique were sharing a canoe. I was in the back, Monique was in the middle, and Desiree was in the front. And I was doing all the work. Desiree had a paddle, but she might as well not have had a paddle because she was just sitting back with her arms behind her head and just saying, isn't this amazing? Isn't God's creation beautiful? And I'm like, yep, it's awesome, All right, Just rowing. And that really was the essence of who Desiree was. She was, her motto was, it's good to be alive. It's good to be alive. And, and after that summer in the fall, we started with our compassion campaign and we started gearing up for an evangelistic series in, in January. And as we were gearing up for this evangelistic series, Desiree and our outreach group, we were meeting, we were getting together, we were super excited. And then we went away for um, Christmas break and we said, all right, second week back, we're going to do our evangelistic series. Awesome. Everyone went their separate ways. A couple days after Christmas, I woke up to the phone call. Desiree had gone home to the Dominican Republic to be with her family. They were traveling on vacation she was in a car with her boyfriend, her father, and her mother. The car skid off a cliff, crashed. Desiree and her father died instantly. I get that text at five o'clock in the morning. Desiree's dead. Lord, why? Why her, Lord? Why now? Lord, if you would have... What? No words. All we knew is I had to face a group of mourning students coming back. And as we came back, we were heartbroken. We had nothing to say. We didn't know what to do. All we knew is we had to keep it going for Desiree. We got in touch with her family. Some family, her, her mom had a broken arm and was in the hospital. Her boyfriend had survived. And so we started to work with the family because she had all her stuff over here, make arrangements for some sort of a memorial with the university. And the thing about it was is that we had a evangelistic series scheduled for the second week back. Desiree was an integral part of that. And we were wondering what we should do. We decided to go ahead with it. But here's the crazy thing is that the family, they could only come up on the Wednesday of the evangelistic series. And they wanted us to work together to organize a memorial for Desiree. And so we sat with our evangelist, Jeremy Anderson. We said, hey man, can we turn Wednesday night into a memorial service for this young lady? He said, sure. So we set the time. Now here's the thing about Desiree. Desiree means desire. And Desiree had one desire in her heart, 
And that was to see her family and her friends and her professors to show them the gospel, to show them Jesus. On our last campus church, before we left, Desiree stood up. We were sharing testimonies and prayer requests, and she stood up crying. And she said, I'm really struggling with my professor. She was a, ma- she was a master's student in animal science. She said, I'm really struggling with my professor. He's giving me a really hard time. And I'm really trying to be a Christian towards him, but it's a struggle, weeping. So we set the date. We had, a, uh, um, we had rented a chapel right next across the street from campus. We had our students come that Wednesday night. We had the guests and visitors come. The family came and sat in the first row. The dean of students came, her professors came, and her classmates came. And we stood up and we said, tonight is Wednesday night of our grace tour. But we're going to interrupt it right now for a memorial of our friend. We had students come up and share their testimonies about this, the amazing heart that this young girl had. And then Jeremy got up and he gave a gospel presentation. Here's the crazy thing, is that that night, Desiree's prayer was answered. Her one desire was to see her family and her professors and her friends given the opportunity to accept the gospel of grace. And in her death, that's exactly what happened. In our mourning, somehow, in our groaning, somehow, God groaned with us and was glorified. Her cousin was, who was there came up to me afterwards and she said, all my life Desiree's been trying to tell me to accept Jesus. It's not until tonight that I'm willing to make that decision. The dean of students came up to me afterwards and she said, I've never seen a group of students like this. The way you guys mourn, the way you guys are going through this process is, is like something I've never seen. I'm so proud that there are Adventist students on this campus. I'm amazed by you. And now, whenever a student dies on campus, whether they're Adventist or not, the dean of student calls me and asks me to come and give the closing prayer. And every time I accept that invitation, it's because of Desiree. It's because of a God and a people who groaned. Everything that we do My ministry is full of unknowns. We never know what the next tragedy is going to be. We never know what the next heartbreak is going to look like. But this is one thing that I do know, is that we serve a God who enters into our suffering, who groans with us when we don't have the words to speak. And as long as we acknowledge that God, As long as we worship that God, we are free to express our pain and our sorrow and our guilt and our shame. And as we do that openly and honestly, the beautiful thing about the God that we worship is that he comes right along next to us and he experiences us. He is moved by our pain. We do not serve a savior who is not touched with the feeling of our infirmity. At the end of that series, 
21 people were baptized to the glory of God. Some of those who were baptized were Adventist students who recommitted their life to God and who are right now doing kingdom work. Some of those were first-time baptisms, people who just stepped onto the University of Florida, met some, some Adventist students, came to our series, and decided to give their lives to Jesus. But it was because of one young woman who knew that it was good to be alive. And yet, even in her death and in our mourning, God was glorified. Today, let's worship this God who groans with us. As this praise team comes up, they, I mean, this, are you going to do that song? Oh, my goodness. I asked them to, they were going to do a different song, but I asked them to do this song that they did, that last song that they did, because it was brilliant. And as this song is sung, no matter what you've been experiencing, no matter what pain you've gone through, no matter what sorrow you've gone through, no matter what rejection or loss, no matter what kind of betrayal you've committed or has been committed against you, as you sing this song, just know that God is right there. He enters into that suffering and he offers you himself, the resurrection and the life.